Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin. We got a great pod this week. Let's get to it. Tonight on Edge of Sports, I can't believe it, we're talking to famed sports sociologist Dr. Harry Edwards. We're talking about somebody who influenced the 1968 Olympics and the politics of Colin Kaepernick. He's been in this game over 50 years. Can't wait to talk to him, Dr. Harry Edwards. 
A champion is bred from hard times, scarred mind standing on the ledge. The squad grind all time, victory in spite of opposition. Welcome to competition. You pick a side, I pick a side, they pick a side. Take the knee against abuse, they rather you die. Pushing through dark tunnels, trying to shed light. The fight is on the moment we enter the game of life. Get it right before the whole thing gone dead. Let's go ahead and take it dead. Meet me on the edge. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the TV show. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, an icon joins the program, and I do not use that word lightly. We have civil rights activist and sports sociology pioneer, author of the seminal book, Revolt of the Black Athlete, Dr. Harry Edwards. In Dr. Edwards, we are talking about someone who is an advisor and organizer of figures ranging from Tommy Smith and John Carlos in the lead up to the 1968 Olympics to 50 years later, Colin Kaepernick. It's a remarkable, legendary stretch as the preeminent public intellectual of the sports world. Now, Dr. Edwards is actually why we have no sports scholar on this week, because we have Dr. Harry Edwards, and that's enough sports scholarship over a lifetime to fill a library. So let's bring him on now, the great Dr. Harry Edwards. Dr. Edwards, welcome to Edge of Sports TV. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to jump right in, if you could tell us. I mean, you've been giving lectures for decades and now you're doing something called a project called The Last Lectures. Can you speak to our audience a little bit about what The Last Lectures compose of? Well, what I uh, intended to do three years ago was to make this my last series really of public lectures, uh, spend more time with my grandsons and family and so forth. Um, this is my uh, 80th trip around the sun and I thought it was about time that I tried to prioritize what I really wanted to do with my life. So I wanted to kind of put a cap on uh, over half a century of scholar activism and look at the whole history of uh, athlete activism, the 157 year history and the contributions that had been made by athletes um, uh, to uh, that those efforts to form that more perfect union. Um, uh, contributions that have either been downplayed or overshadowed by their athletic prowess or simply uh, ignored uh, and denied uh, because that degree of activist concern beyond the arena made a lot of people in the mainstream in particular uh, feel uncomfortable. And so they tended to downplay discount neglect, forget, lose uh, that perspective on 157 years of athletes transforming their athletic stages uh, into platforms of uh, advocacy uh, in an effort to help broaden uh, democratic participation in American society. Mm. Now, athletes, of course, have this incredible ability to affect society, affect change, move the needle, reach people who otherwise perhaps could not be reached. What is it about the situational place of the athlete, particularly the black athlete, that has given them a degree of power that allows them to punch through a little bit of the silencing that particularly happens to black America? Well, as I point out in the sociology of sport, a discipline that, um, uh, had been a um, uh, disciplinary possibility that had been overlooked uh, for generations. Uh, we invest so much 
in of our most uh, uh, critical uh, values and sentiments uh, into sport. People identify with athletic teams because they see themselves in their own life struggles uh, taking place uh, through that uh, prism of sport uh, that we can usually, we can uh, uh, typically, usually uh, change circumstances change people by changing their perspectives and understandings of the games that they play. Uh, that was a revolutionary statement uh, in 1968 when churches were being bombed and leaders were being shot down and people were being bitten and driven down the street with fire hoses so powerful they could take the bark off trees for somebody to stand up, raise their hand and say, hey, you know, these guys out here playing basketball have something critical to contribute. These guys out here running track have something critical to contribute. And of course, a lot of people laugh. They're not laughing anymore. Uh, but uh, initially, they didn't understand that whole history. But at the time, I was writing the sociology of sports, so I understood the, the, that that struggle was already a century old. So the basic investment that people and societies have in their sports institution as an, affi as a, 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 an affirmation of a legitimate, a, a legitimation of uh, a, 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 a something that legitimizes the perspectives and so forth that they have ideologically, value sentiment-wise, and so forth. You can use that investment to change people's perceptions and understanding of sport, and in that way, uh, change them and society. So women's sports have had a tremendous impact in terms of changing perceptions of women in American society. And of course, it's inextricably intertwined with what's going on in the broader society. So something like the rescinding of Roe v. Wade is, constitutes an existential threat to women's sports. People talk about Title IX in 1972 that uh, mandated parity for women in terms of expenditures in sports and other areas of uh, education. But what they don't talk about is 1973 Roe v. Wade, which gave colleges and universities and professional teams that would eventually emerge some assurance that if we gave this woman a contract, if we gave this woman, woman an athletic scholarship in May, she'd be around in September to start the season. She'd be around in March to play in March Madness. She'd be around in June to run in uh, the NC2A track championships or play the uh, finals uh, of a professional sport and so forth. So uh, all of that now is again in question, but it goes back to something else that I uh, stated uh, in 1968, uh, that uh, the challenges of our circumstances are diverse and dynamic. Uh, our struggle, therefore, necessarily must be multifaceted and perpetual, and there are no final victories. We mm -hmm. keep going back, fighting battles that the last generation thought won, but there are no final victories. So here we are again, trying to uh, eliminate uh, this uh, consigning of women to reproductive bondage as if it were 1920 or 1950. We're again fighting for voting rights as if it were 1965 uh, or 1866 uh, uh, at the onset of Reconstruction. Uh, here we are again uh, fighting for access 
to higher education, terrain that we thought we had conquered. We're going back fighting battles over that terrain. So there are no final victories and sport reflects all of this. Sport in point of fact is the canary in the mine shaft that tells us something about what's going on in the broader society. Mm. In the late 60s, did you believe then that a final victory was possible, that smashing or dismantling institutions of oppression was a possibility? And how, how has your thinking evolved on that over time? No, I didn't. I never thought that there was a final. Matter of fact, the, the statement that I made about there being no final victories was in response to a reporter in 1968 when we shut down the New York Athletic Club over discrimination. They would invite us in to participate in the New York Athletic Club indoor track classic, but we couldn't walk into the New York Athletic Club. We couldn't uh, stay overnight at the New York Athletic Club. And so uh, I knew that the, the reporter asked me, well, doctor, was if Jackie Robinson wasn't able to get this done, uh, look at uh, Bill Russell, uh, look, look at Elgin Baylor, uh, look at all of these great black athletes who come along. What makes you think that you're going to be able to get it done through such a uh, tactics and strategies as boycotting the New York Athletic Club or this proposed boycott of the uh, uh, United States Olympic team that you're proposing. What makes you think that that's going to get it done? And that's when I made the statement that there are no final victories. Every generation has to confront the challenges before them. And sometimes those challenges uh, involve refighting, rebattling over terrain that the last generation thought it had conquered. There are no final victories. This is what this whole notion of pursuing that more perfect union. We're never going to be, have a perfect union, but we have that mandate constitutionally, we the people, to pursue uh, forming that more perfect union. And it doesn't say we the people with the exception of athletes. And thank God it doesn't say we the people. Uh, it's Thank God it says we the people and not we the presidents. Are we the Supreme Court justices? Are we the United States Congress? Are we the legis uh, state legislators or governors? It says we the people. And that includes the athletes. And many of us always took that seriously. So there was no question in my mind or in the mind of H. Rap Brown, who I had extensive uh, discussions with about this issue, or in the mind of Dr. King, who I also uh, discussed this uh, issue with. And we held a press conference uh, uh, in New York City on January 17, 1968, in point of fact, about this very, this very issue. Uh, the that that sport and society are inextricably intertwined and what is a legitimate battle in society is also a legitimate battle in sports and we have a greater and more visible platform uh, to make statements and to project uh, uh, visions of change in sports so no I've, I've uh, I was writing my dissertation on the sociology of sport in 1968 uh, I was a student of sport and society and so I've never uh, had this notion that somehow there's going to be some final blow that's going to free up even the institution of uh, of sport, much less society. You know, one of your observations in the 60s, which was so bracing, which I have not found record of anybody making previously, was that U.S. black Olympians were being used to sell a lie abroad about the state of racism in the United States. Fast forward to today, uh, global superstars from Jordan to LeBron. Um, 
are we still in that place where the global fame of athletes has can, can be incredible and powerful, but it could also possibly obscure problems here at home? Well, that's true, but you have to put that in context as well. There's never been uh, a progressive movement involving race in American society that was not transactional. Uh, what we have to offer that society values in exchange for giving us a role, a participatory role uh, in uh, increasingly democratic society. What do we have to offer? So there's never been a move, progressive move involving race in American society that was not transactional. People talk about the black quarterback today. Oh, isn't it wonderful that uh, the NFL has finally awakened to the fact that black quarterbacks are intelligent enough and so forth to play quarterback in at the highest level. Nonsense. What brought, gave us the black quarterback was not a change in attitude about race and so forth uh, in the NFL among NFL, NFL owners and coaches. What gave us the black quarterback was the fact that uh, Bill Walsh, uh, Sid Gilman, Eric Coriel moved the game from a run first to a pass first game, which meant that a quarterback could win a game with an 80 yard pass. And I don't care if you had been ahead, the other team had been ahead the whole game. So you began to develop a counter to the quarterback, which was the sack artist, Lawrence Taylor, uh, most certainly Charles Haley, uh, uh, you know, uh, people uh, like Michael Strahan and so forth. Uh, these sack artists began to take over. So now it wasn't enough just to have pocket mobility. <laughs> Despite all of the built-in Tom Brady protections for the cattle, for the, for the, for the pocket passer and so forth, you had to have escapability. And so all of a sudden, um, a Lamar Jackson, a Patrick Mahomes, uh, these guys became prototypical NFL quarterback. What gave us the black quarterback was not a change, a victory in NFL football in terms of the perceptions of black intellectual capability and so forth. What gave us the black quarterback in the NFL was Michael Strahan, Charles Haley, Lawrence Taylor, and others just as surely as the lion gave the antelope his speed. So at the mm -hmm. end of the day, we have to recognize that transaction is what is critically uh, important. And that has been all along the way. So black athletes taking center stage abroad came about as a consequence, in part as a result of the post-World War II Cold War with China and the Soviet Union, and now with Russia and China, as they point out to Africa, Central and South America and Asia, you're going to go with them as opposed to us. Look at how they treat black people in their own country. Look at how they treat Asians in their own country. Look at how they're treating uh, Latino immigrants in their own country. And so to have uh, 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 Latino baseball players at center stage, to have black basketball and football players at center stage is a transactional uh, uh, situation that evolved in consequence of broader issues, as well as internal demands for greater freedom, justice, and equality uh, as we pursue uh, forming that more perfect union. Uh, so, And it's an ongoing struggle. Yes, are, is, is the situation changed today 
from the post-World War II years when they brought in Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and baseball, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode and Marion Motley and Bill Willis and football, um, Chuck Cooper, uh, Nat uh, Clifton, uh, and uh, um, Earl Lord in basketball. No, it hasn't changed. What had the dynamic is the same. What has changed are the actors. Mm. You know, th- there's a story that that I'd love for you to tell. I just read about it at the Anscape website. I, I didn't know any of this history. Uh, 1987, Al Campanis on the Nightline TV show. He was the president, uh, GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he said that black people did not have the necessities to become baseball managers and executives. Uh, He was quickly fired. And then please take it from here. What happened next? Well, my uh, fellow San Jose Spartan, Peter Uberoth, was also commissioner of Major League Baseball at that time. And he asked me to come in, work out a uh, plan, a strategy to make this correct. Because Al Campanis was really being scapegoated for an attitude that was more or less general in the baseball hierarchy in this country. And uh, Peter Ubroth understood that. So uh, he said, I'm not going to interfere with you. You do what you feel is necessary to make this right, uh, to put us on the right path in terms of it. Uh, Campanis is probably through in baseball, but we can do something, I think, to get on the right path in terms of how we handle this situation. So the first thing I did when I came in was to hire Al Campanis. Uh, because at some point, I don't care how far apart we are, as a nation, we're going to have to come together. We're going to have to sit down at the table, arrive at some agreement as to the direction we want to go in, and then give people the latitude, even those who have made grievous mistakes, to say, I want to help. And when I contacted Al, the first thing he asked me was, what could I do to help? I said, Al, you know more about baseball uh, than I will ever know. Who are great candidates to be front office um, officials in Major League Baseball? The first person he named was Dusty Baker. And I said, well, let's meet with Dusty Baker. We, He was out of the Dodgers organization like Al. Uh, and so we met. Um, uh, at a restaurant that was under pressure uh, because of hiring practices and so forth in terms of minorities. We went in there and sat down at that restaurant and met with Dusty. And we decided that not only would we uh, bring uh, pressure to hire Dusty Baker, but we would have him hired by the Dodgers arch competitor, arch uh, adversary the San Francisco Giants. And so Dusty went into the San Francisco Giants organization, was hired, and now has worked his way up, of course, uh, to be a successful manager. And in point of fact, was the World Series championship manager in uh, 2022. Unfortunately, neither team had an African-American on its roster, Mm. even though uh, the Astros had... um, uh, the 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 uh, Dusty's team, uh, of course, had this had a black manager. So at the end of the day, uh, Dusty Baker was a product of Al Campanis and I trying to come together to demonstrate two things that even arch rivals could cooperate and collaborate to make something great happen in terms of what we're supposed to be uh, as a society, what we profess to be uh, as a nation, and that even people as far apart as a 1960s radical 
such as myself, a black power advocate and organizer and a Al Campanus can come together to try to make this thing right. And then point of fact, our basic position was that as a people and as a nation, we have no other option. And the greatest thing about having no other option than to come together, sit around the table, arrive at some strategy to move forward is that you have no other option. And so that makes it a little bit easier. And that's what Al Campanis and I were trying to do, both in terms of us getting together and also having Dustin Baker, who came out of the Dodger organization, uh, being hired by the Dodgers arch rival, the San Francisco Giants, and then moving forward, of course, and it all coming to fruition uh, this past year in the World Series. Yeah, an amazing story. And that chapter in it was certainly something that was not said during the broadcast, which makes your, your <laughs> testimony about it so incredibly important. And it Absolutely. speaks to this other question, which I'd be so remiss if I didn't ask you. Um, over the last many decades, you have been the most prominent public intellectual allowed in this sports world space to be able to debate, discuss, and influence policy. And frankly, I don't even know who number two would be. And I wanted to ask you about the secret sauce because I know a lot of young academics right now, young sports, I'm sure you're meeting them too. This new generation of sports scholars are attempting to be more forward-facing, more public, trying to connect with athletes, trying to develop new theories. And I think they who watch this program would love to know how it's done. Is there any applicable advice for your ability to get inside the room that you can share? Um, yes, uh, my first piece of advice would be um, to hold on to that dream of contributing, mm. of being part of that narrative, of making a contribution in that definitional struggle about what we ought to be as a society, what we already are uh, as a nation and the trajectory of where we might be headed as a people if we do not resolve some of these critical divisions and so forth that we're faced with. Hold on to that dream of uh, having input into that. Do not be dissuaded, discouraged, and so forth because you're not getting a call from a major network or because you're not getting uh, eight requests for uh, lectures and, and panels a year. Uh, the second thing that I would say is learn to dream with your eyes open. Never allow yourself to take for granted that anything that has happened will continue to have the impact initially uh, as it was initially conceived. And also understand that there are things that emerge within the context of evolving reality that nobody had anticipated but that can be managed within the context of your understanding of the dynamics involved. And the third thing that I would say is take full advantage of the only shortcut to getting to where you want to get. Take full advantage of the only demonstrable shortcut to success in this realm. And that is hard work, everything else is more difficult. You have to put in the homework, the study, the analysis. Uh, you have to make 
uh, the kinds of uh, decisions that position you to see more clearly, that position you to think uh, in greater depth. And if you don't do that, if you're discouraged by, well, so-and-so says that that's not important. So-and-so says that sports is the tar department of human affairs. So-and-so says there's no such thing as a sociology of sport. And I mean, the, the, the kinds of arguments that I had to pose to simply get that argument and discussion on the table, uh, it, it, it sounds ludicrous, but I, I had to argue. Uh, at mm. one of the greatest institutions uh, in this society, Cornell University, the PhD program. I had to argue, uh, if uh, sociologists are paying attention to dyads, two-person relationships, and triads, three-person relationships, and writing dissertations and monographs and all other kinds of things on these relationships, but 100 million people watching the NFL championship game is not worthy of sociological analysis, then somebody is insane and it's not me, you know? And finally mm -hmm. he said, okay, you can write your dissertation in that area. <laughs> so you can't be dissuaded by the limitations of uh, vision uh, evidenced by those who you, uh, because of the area that you're working in, have to work with. You have to cut them some slack, give them some latitude, try to point them in a different direction, but never ever uh, be diminished in your dream of making a contribution. Uh, look, um, I'm on my 80th trip around the sun. Uh, this is one that is going to be over uh, sooner rather than later, more than likely. There's going to be ample space for people to step in and say, if old Edwards can mm -hmm. do this, if he can illuminate uh, a, an area of uh, a, a, academic, activist, popular, uh, development to this extent, geez, how much more can I do? Because I'm just that much better, smarter, insightful than he was. Uh, that's mm. the attitude that they should uh, that they should take. And the the other incredible, almost uh, puzzling talent that you've had over the decades is the ability to connect with the individual athlete. And I say puzzling because. A lot of, we all know that to be a pro athlete takes an incredible dedication. A lot of these young men and women wear blinders just for the purposes of getting to those goals. And yet you've been able to pull back the blinders in a lot of one-on-one -on -one and group conversations. Again, an advice question. You're connecting with an athlete. What is the best way to let them know that not only you care, but that you have some knowledge that can help push everybody forward? I think that in the age of social media, that's easier than ever. Mm. You can respond to athletes' websites, uh, Twitter accounts, Instagrams, and so forth. But more important than anything is dealing honestly with the realities and so forth that athletes and all of us are impacted by and involved with. I was blessed throughout my um, professional and career development to have personal contacts, to be able to pick up the telephone and call, uh, to be able to meet with one-on-one -on -one some of the greatest athletes that this nation has ever produced. Uh, 
I don't care whether it's Arthur Ashe or Tommy Smith and John Carlos or Bill Russell or Jim Brown, uh, Kurt Flood, uh, Wilma Rudolph, uh, to be able to, to, to pick up the telephone and, and, and chat with them about an issue uh, that came out in uh, a Sports Illustrator, how they might handle a problem that came up uh, in their particular sport has been a, um, a tremendous blessing for me. But the the obstacle, uh, the main obstacle to getting to that level uh, is not from the side of the athletes. It's from the side of the individual who aspires to have those kinds of conversations which become a, uh, a critical dimension of their analysis and understanding of the sports institution and its role in society. If you don't know the people most critically involved, and it is the athletes who are most critically involved in sports, I don't care how great an owner you are, um, you know, nobody's gonna come to see Jerry Jones play quarterback <laughs> against Robert Kraft. Uh, they, they come to see the athletes. And so that connection becomes critical, but getting, getting access to that connection uh, is always difficult, but there are. It's easier today because of the social media than 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 ever before. You've been so generous with your time, Doctor Edwards. Just just one last question. We're going full circle now with with the the last lectures. Uh, no one really gets to choose their legacy, but what would you like your legacy to be in the decades ahead? You know that that's one that I've n not given. I've given virtually no thought to uh, because that's not one that, that I can control. That's something that people will write after I'm on the other side of the lawn. Uh, but if I had an image, if there was something that I would like to be remembered for, it would be this. I would like people to know, to believe, to think that I was a great teacher. You know, we, we've all heard that old uh, uh, saying, uh, those who can do and those who would prepare, develop, and certify mm. those who do teach. Uh, I think that teaching uh, is the greatest profession in the world because unlike uh, dentistry, medicine, architecture, law, uh, chemistry, uh, who, who do all of these professionals who do something for somebody. A great teacher incites people to think and inspires them to learn so that they can do for themselves. And that is the greatest uh, thing that you will ever do for anyone. So I hope that somebody at some point will at least say, well, yeah, old Edwards was a pain in the you know what, but he was also a great teacher. I think that he helped to change the world's perspective uh, and understanding of sport, which meant that they had a greater and better understanding of themselves. And that is what I would like to be a central part of my legacy. Of course, I'll never get away from the activist dimension of it, which was such an important part of my teaching because I was just teaching. Uh, teaching the world. Being a teacher, to me, is, is what is central and critically important. Mm. Yeah, we just happened to be interviewing Solomon Hughes last week, uh, and uh, 
he said to us, yeah, my life was changed uh, at Berkeley when I had a professor named Dr. Harry Edwards. So <laughs> <laughs> that part of your legacy, I think, is very secured. Dr. Edwards, thanks so much for joining us on Edge of Sports TV. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. A privilege anytime. Okay, as I said earlier, I have no Ask a Sports Scholar segment because who would want to follow Dr. Harry Friggin Edwards? But I do have some choice words. Okay, look, for those who do not know, we record and produce this TV show in the great city of Baltimore, a place with a sports history as rich as any in the worlds of pro baseball and football, but without an NBA team. This was not always the case. In 1963, Baltimore got a team as the Chicago Packers moved to town and called themselves the Baltimore Bullets. Then a decade later, the Bullets left Baltimore for the D.C. suburbs. First as the Capitol Bullets in Landover, Maryland, outside of D.C., they eventually became known as the Washington Bullets. The story continues. In 1997, the team dropped the Bullets' name because of concerns of owner Abe Poland that they were glorifying violence. They became the Wizards, but with that rebranding, the team enacted a different kind of violence, this kind cruel and cold, with profits running roughshod over the people. Poland moved the team to a brand spanking new arena in the heart of D.C.'s Chinatown, irrevocably changing the area. The arrival of the arena was like a bomb going off, flattening the entire community. It signaled the end of Chinatown as a place where actual Chinese and Chinese-American families lived and ran shops and restaurants. Instead, it became a neighborhood that adapted to the stadium as developers tore down local businesses in favor of high-end chains with impossibly bright signage. And of course, in a nod to what was, the names of the restaurants are spelled out in tiny Mandarin lettering beneath the big signs, writ large, promising high-end gluttony either before or after the game. A community had been replaced by a brand. That shoddy Blade Runner-esque landscape is what exists now in the Chinatown corridor, and so it has been for a quarter century. But now there are reports that the Washington Wizards are planning their fifth move in 60 years, with an eye on tax breaks and public funds that could be accrued by hightailing it to the Commonwealth of Virginia, along with the NHL's Washington Capitals and perhaps even the WNBA's Washington Mystics, who are playing in a brand new arena themselves in southeast D.C. Franchise owner Ted Leonsis, who bought the team from Abe Poland, has decided that threatening to move the team's straight extortion is the way he wants to do business with the city. Let's forget a moment that $70 million was spent to refurbish the arena just two years ago. Let's forget that if this move happens, the team will either call themselves the Virginia Wizards, which sounds more KKK than a pack of Marlboros, or remain the Washington Wizards, keeping the commercial branding while abandoning the city. A total slap in the face. Forget that if they dare continue the tradition of playing Welcome to D.C. by Go-Go Legends Mambo Sauce in the arena, it would be yet another slap in D.C.'s face by a feckless franchise that hasn't won 50 games in a season since Jimmy Carter was president. Also, forget that while Northern Virginia is close, it's psychologically and politically, for a lot of folks in D.C., a whole other world. Forget all of that. What is truly vexing me What's really grinding my gears is that this team is now threatening to gut the same neighborhood for the second time in a quarter century. 
What is going to happen to all those big box bars and restaurants in Chinatown? If the arena leaves, will they be able to stay open? No. Will Chinatown magically come roaring back? No. Instead, we'll be left with a ghost town of boarded up restaurants with tumbleweed lazily being blown across 7th Street. This is maddening, an utterly venal effort aimed at extorting more money out of a city in a budget crunch. Team owner Ted Leonsis might as well be saying, nice neighborhood you got here. Be a shame if something happened to it. Look, if you know me, you know what my solution to this would be. The city should seize the Wizards, pay off Leonsis, and have the team become the most lucrative public utility in the city. Enough with franchise owners coast to coast threatening our cities for more public welfare during a time of rising inequality and infrastructure degradation. I mean, a portion of I-95 quite literally collapsed, and yet new sports arenas is where the Ted Leonsis's of this world are saying we should be spending our precious public funds. So if you want to break it down to a slogan, save DC, save the Wizards, seize the team. Well, that's all the time this week. Thank you, Dr. Harry Edwards. Thank you to the team here at The Real News Network. If you are listening right now, if you are watching, please stay frosty, stay safe. We are out of here. 